Hello and welcome everybody. My name is Stefan Killer-Hauk. I'm the communications manager of Treasured here in lovely Munich, Germany. And today I feel really excited because we have a very special guest for you today and a very interesting topic, which is essentially, of course, as always about data privacy to some extent, but this time this will be about human rights activism. Um, it will be about mass surveillance abuse, so serious talk today. But before we dive into the matter, um, we will have some housekeeping notes that I wanted to share with you in advance. So um, this session is being recorded and therefore you will be able to watch this later on our YouTube channel and some other places probably too. Um, but I'd advise you to stay and ask your questions with the Q&A button as our guest speaker will be able to stay with us and answer hopefully every question you have. So ask them just right away, write them down, ask them later, whatever you prefer. But I think we should stop talking about housekeeping and dive right into this. So um, this is um, our guest. He's a fighter for human rights. He's an investigative researcher. He's a book author. And all his work led him to a um, Nobel Peace Prize nomination in 2017. He says, tech like AI is in the hands of the wrong people, at least. Um, a weapon of mass disinformation, and you cannot do a thing that is private on the internet in China. What he means with this and what he tries to share um, with us, um, he will be talking about this in a minute. So welcome, Ethan Gutmann. It's good to have you here. Thank you very much. It's great to be here. So um, what is it like to do field research on human rights violations in or near China and other autocratic systems? And how did you manage to um, shield confidential information? Yeah, I mean, first of all, I just mentioned something. I'm in my grandmother's house and that's my, uh, my grandfather, in fact, was an anthropologist and spent a lot of time in Chiapas, Mexico. So this stuff is, and my father also was uh, uh, a psychologist who did field work out in uh, <laughs> Navajo Indian reservations and the Golan Heights and places like that. So uh, this is very much something that just comes out of my background. Having said that, uh, yes, once the human rights gets in your blood, you kind of get dedicated to it. You kind of get that, you, 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 you get that bug. And uh, I've never really been able to shake it. Now, we had a very specific the field, if you like, of organ harvesting. And I'm not gonna get into that today. I just wanna mention that it's there. Uh, if you've heard about it, you may have heard some skeptical or seen some skeptical comments in the comment section that appear in the web everywhere. Uh, I, I'm not really paying attention to those these days because uh, Congress just passed the Stop Organ, I'm sorry, House, the House of Representatives just passed the Stop Organ Harvesting Act of 2023 just a couple of months ago. Maybe uh, to give you a background to the audience, sorry to interrupt you. Ethan. Sure, so sure. Maybe some the, people the aren't the, aware the, of you the, being the, an, being the author of a book about organ harvesting and this matter. There's a, lot of, there's a lot of people involved in this field. I mean, I've, I've written a, a book that had a lot of impact, even though it was kind of a late hit, which was called The Slaughter. And uh, that came out in 2014. Uh, it, and uh, basically, the uh, accusation against China is that they 
are not only uh, taking death row prisoners and taking their organs, extracting their organs, and then selling them to either Chinese citizens or to foreigners uh, in China. And, uh, but they're also doing it to uh, political and religious prisoners like Falun Gong. And now uh, some of you, most of you will be aware of, you've certainly heard something has been happening to this group called the Uyghurs. People mispronounce that all the time. It's, it's, it's very easy to say, actually, to say Uyghur. Uh, <laughs> you can Americanize it. And uh, the Uyghurs are a, a Muslim group, though there's a lot of reasons why they're being persecuted. And a lot of that probably has more to do with ethnicity than uh, their spiritual preferences. Uh, but the key thing is that we knew, and it has been understood for a long time, in, as I said, in Congress. Uh, at the top levels, uh, intelligence knows about this. And uh, to a great extent, we've just seen a massive shift in the medical community as well. I just did the keynote address for the International Society for Heart and Lung Transplantation, uh, their annual conference. And uh, that was 3,600 screaming fans. I mean, um, <laughs> transplant doctors in the audience uh, listening to me for half an hour. And they pretty much knew what I was going to say. So you, you can... Uh, I wasn't going to say everything's fine and we can just move on uh, at all. And so the fact is, this is a fairly settled issue, but without information, without showing that this is happening currently or not happening currently, uh, you know, there, there's going to be a different uh, attitude about what to do about all this. And uh, so a couple of years ago, we knew that the Uyghurs had been... Uh, blood tested on mass. Literally everybody above the age of 12 had been told to show up at these centers and be uh, given health checks. And this included a blood test, which was also had a DNA test connected with it and so forth. Now, these weren't actual tests where people, you know, they sort of wrote you a little letter a couple of weeks later and sort of said, you know, you've got some, you're hypoglycemic or <laughs> something like that. They, there literally was no follow-up. And there so, was no standard procedure either, right? It's just that the, the procedure was, it's incredible. I've seen films of it that were taken surreptitiously. It was absolutely, you couldn't take them uh, openly. And I mean, it's just a bunch of people sort of crowded in looking desperate and, and, and sad. It's a, it's a, they're, they're really awful to watch. Uh, but the, the point is, most people were not really thinking about this in terms of organ harvesting. They were thinking about this in terms of surveillance of this population. Uh, I tend to think about it in terms of organ harvesting, but I needed to find out if that was true. And I can't enter China. Going into China is anyone I would talk to in that Uyghur community or in the Falun Gong community or House Christian or Tibetan for that matter. It is a death sentence for them to talk to me even if I could get into the country, which I probably can't. Uh, so I had to do something else, which is to look for the refugees, the few people who've made it out. And we're talking about a very, very small number of people who've made it out of this region of Western China called Xinjiang. Now that region borders on three states, uh, Tajikistan, Kyrgyzstan, and uh, uh, Kazakhstan. And those borders are slightly porous, slightly. 
especially in Kazakhstan, because there's a lot of Kazakh, there's a Kazakh minority inside uh, China. And they have family members on the other side of the border and so forth, and they are nomadic people. That's their origins. And so Kazakhs in some cases were able to get out. They weren't as much the focus of this as the Uyghurs anyways, and they were able to get out and then they would sort of go into hiding and uh, presumably with a lot of post-traumatic stress disorder, they'd sort of hide out in Kazakhstan. Well, for me to get in there and ask questions in Kazakhstan, I had a problem, which is that my book did make me a little bit, you know, famous in human rights circles, which is very low compared to the Kardashians or something like that, but it's, it's still there. I have a, there's a Wikipedia page, it's a little controversial, it's on me. And I said, well, how do I do this? And the way I came up with, after talking to some people in intelligence and so forth, well, they said, well, why don't you just try seeing if you can slip in by car? Well, that was actually my idea originally was, I said, if I come in by plane, they're gonna look at me on the border, they're gonna take the scan of my face and <laughs> very shortly after, they're gonna put a tail on me. They're gonna follow everything I do. And that means they, and that's not a big concern for me. I mean, who cares, right? And even if they were to pull me into questioning, I mean, that's good for the sales of my next book if I get thrown in jail for a night, let's be frank. But I couldn't do this to the witnesses. The witnesses have family back in China in many cases. These people are, it's almost a hostage situation. These people can be rounded up very quickly. Uh, and if it's discovered that they're talking to me. So I have to protect them. And that is the number one priority is first of all, do no harm. Okay, all right, that's the background. So uh, we're talking about harm, sorry, um, we need to dive into this a bit more, I think. So what was the accusations actually? Well, what I was looking for was I said, how do we determine since the Chinese have a complete blackout now on uh, any medical data about transplants really. And we know that the transplant data they come up with is is in many cases just uh, AI generated. They just take an equation and you know, show a graph of people volunteering their organs and it's a perfect parabolic curve and so forth. So we know it's, it's bunk. And we, you know, the, 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 uh, we used to get a lot of research out of the medical community that we could kind of intercept uh, and, and you could data scrape the web to get it, but that's gone. So there's only one way, which is these refugees from camps. Now they were in the camps and these camps hold about a million, some people say 3 million people. Even the State Department makes an estimate saying 3 million to 800,000, that was their estimate. So let's assume a million, that's plenty, okay? For a population of about 15 million Uyghurs. Uh, but within that, only handful had come out to the West. We'd gotten less than 10 people who'd actually made it out of the camps and made it out of the West. And I did interview those people. Uh, what we really needed was all these Kazakhs. That's where the bulk of the witnesses were hanging out. And now we're talking about maybe a thousand people. Now, most of those people will not want to talk because they don't they want to forget what they went through and they don't want to take any risks uh, in a surveillance state, which Kazakhstan is. And so the question was, well, but if I can get to some of them and I can ask them questions about what they saw in the camp, and not tip my hand that I'm looking into our organ harvesting. Well, I've got a very good sample there. 
and particularly because the Uyghurs, uh, they're not Uyghurs in most cases, they're Kazakhs. So this isn't their fight. That makes them very uh, dependable witnesses. They don't have a, they're, they're, they're not likely to exaggerate their stories as much. But to get in, the, the way I finally determined, long story short, is I recruited my foster daughter, who's 24, beautiful girl, uh, very smart and intelligent. And, and I said, how do you feel about going on a skiing holiday to Kazakhstan? And we loaded, we got a car that was a 2003 uh, with four wheel drive because at 2000, past 2005, basically cars have computer chips in them, which can be, you know, which can be monitored all the way. So you're really, really never alone. Uh, but we got this 2003 in Germany and we loaded, put skis on the top of the car and loaded the car up with uh, silly hats and uh, books about the snow leopard and <laughs> all kinds of things like that. And, uh, and we drove to Kazakhstan. Uh, from, now, Germany. To, from Germany, which means we took the Black Sea Ferry. Back then you could do that in Odessa. And uh, that gets you around. You know, so there's a, we got to see a lot of interesting places along the way. And we then had to wait for almost a week in uh, Baku for the ferry, which does not have a schedule, which takes you over to Kazakhstan. Uh, this is a truck driver route. Okay, that's pretty much all you meet on the route is truck drivers. We were very interested in my daughter, but fortunately, they, uh, you know, they respect a familial relationship like we had. So uh, that was our scheme, and we did that. And then what we did was once we got to, actually just before we got to Kazakhstan, we turned off all the devices, put them in Faraday cages. As Stalin makes a very nice kind of leather case, which has a kind of tinfoil inside and kind of holds the holds all the information. We, we turned off all the devices, never to turn them on again. And we just operated with a map. It was actually in German, because that's the only one we could really find. Like a paper and map. A, a paper map and, and a compass, right? And I think many of us aren't really used to using these kinds of maps anymore. <laughs> well, I'm a little older than you. So I do actually remember using a map and a compass before. and, and uh, uh, we, soon, we soon determined that the uh, car would throw off the compass, so that meant I had to get out of the car to do a compass check. Uh, and it was freezing cold. This is winter. We decided to go. That was my other idea, was to go kind of during Christmas, because that's a very long, drawn-out period where the security gets a little lax, <laughs> which also meant we had to deal with a lot of snow, and they don't plow the roads in, in Kazakhstan, roads such as they are. Point is that we basically disappeared. We got through the border check, uh, which was very thorough, and they did uh, biometric pictures of uh, faces and so forth, and then we disappeared. We literally could not be found. And the only thing we had was uh, some burner phones that we picked up in um, Georgia. Uh, so we had these burner phones that we could use to contact the people I'd set up on the other side the other side of the country, in Kazakhstan, in Almaty. And so we could say, look, we're halfway through the country or whatever, we should be arriving in two days, this kind of thing. All right, so that's all very romantic and, and so forth. But uh, the, the payoff to this 
us was that then when we got to Almaty, we had a safe house, an apartment, which had, did not have our names on it. And I just figured out a way to pay the person. And we had this place. And it was very close to a sort of fancy mall in Almaty, maybe one of the fanciest malls in the whole country. Uh, and we, we would send out a translator or fixer who we were working with that day and say, meet this person at such and such. You can do Starbucks if you wanted to. And make them put their device into the solemn bag, the Faraday cage, and then lead them up to the apartment and we'll interview them. Now that is very different from what I picture, you know, driving around and doing all these things, but actually was the safest way to do this. Uh, and so I was able to collect over two months, we were able to collect a lot of interviews uh, using this method. And we were, I was able to actually generate some numbers that about 25 to 50,000 people every year were going missing from the camp, average age 28, and pretty clearly they were being used for organ harvesting because this was always preceded by a health check with the blood test and so forth. And the, the age that we know that the Chinese establishment prefers to harvest people at is 28 years old or 29, right in there. Okay, your organs are very healthy, they've, but they've stopped growing. This is perfect, okay. All right, the question was, what do we do? Uh, how do we get rid of this information? I had all these tapes. I mean, I'd been using these devices, but I'd completely cut off the internet angle of it. We hadn't even turned on a phone. The only thing we turned on was a burner phone the whole time we were there uh, for two months. We finally had a kind of a, a phone we were able to acquire, and that was very difficult. It had somebody else's name on it. And uh, we used that to drive around town because we kept getting lost with our GPS. <laughs> okay. uh, and so that, that saved a lot of time. But the bottom line was nobody really could track our position. Nobody could track the witness's position. Nobody could track the fact that the witness had spoken. Now, how do we get rid of the information? And uh, I, don't know, I don't know what kind of detail you want to get into here, but I have an embarrassing passion. You're free. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yes, you like. Uh, this embarrassing confession is that I thought we could do it through FedEx. I thought, well, FedEx is, they have a FedEx office here in Almaty. It's an international city. This will be fine. We went to the FedEx office. I had tapes, uh, the, uh, the recordings. I packaged them all into a very one, very neat data stick. I encrypted that. And uh, we had uh, notes from the interviews. And the man behind the counter, uh, I was there with my uh, fixer and translator, and he kind of quietly, almost without moving his lips, looked at the stuff for a little while and said, you know they're going to, state security is gonna look at this. Uh, in other words, the the police, this really secret police, are going to be looking at this material. Now, that is not something you expect with FedEx. I mean, they're, they're perfectly within their rights to look at your material, but you just assume, well, they work for FedEx. So to make this perfectly clear, these uh, people at the border there check each and every 
package you're trying to give? This is just a FedEx office in Almaty. Okay. It's real clean, looks nice. It's like, like being home. But the guy, without moving his lips, said, and Kazakh, not Russian. So I think it's harder to even uh, interpret because he obviously is being filmed by something. Said, you know, they're going to look at this. And I'm ashamed to say that I actually walked out saying, okay. And then my fixer translator said, Ethan, what are you doing? Okay, <laughs> you know, it's like lives there. And I said, you're right, you're right. And we went back in and he said, I haven't sent it yet. Did you want something? And I said, yeah, we're, we don't need to send it today. Thank you. We appreciate all the time you spent on this. So how did you move on then? Well, then we, that night, we were about to leave the next day to uh, drive back to Germany, actually to London. And we tried, we said, okay. I said, let's turn on the devices. Let's just try to send this out wetransfer.com. The minute I did, devices started immediately. We turned on two devices. They both started loading up with all this internet activity, which had been, hadn't, you know, they had all these emails started pouring in and so forth. And we tried to send it with WeTransfer and it didn't work. It just slowed down to a crawl. And I said, oh my God, this is something I've seen before in China. When they're monitoring you, everything slows down. That's the first sign. I got very paranoid, very excited. Uh, so it wasn't said, about we, we, connectivity with some network? Look, I don't know exactly, and I don't want to make rash accusations, but I sense that we transfer, seeing something coming from Kazakhstan has a problem. That it, I've sent files like that before. Uh, and I don't know what their problem is, and I don't know who they're sharing it or how, who's watching. I have no idea. But I know that's not a safe way to send information. So the we had no choice. We had to drive to the Russian border. It took about three days. Uh, we protected the information. We, we took pictures of it. Of course, we never used analog. Uh, we, we always never used digital. We always used analog. My daughter black and white photographers can take the Nikon and take pictures of these, what we needed. Because we figure you get into the border, it's very unlikely they're going to actually develop your black and white film there. Okay, unless they really, you know, hold you in for a while. Uh, a lot of the recordings were actually made on tape and using a dictaphone. That was very important. Uh, that's the most secure method uh, that you can use is to go completely off the grid. And we got to that border and that's where the nightmare start, became. I mean, there we were suddenly hanging by a thread. We're sitting there in this kind of nasty border. I remember our shoes were all full of cold water and so forth from melting snow. And the, the Russian, there's two Russian women, border officials. And one of them is looking at me, obviously on the web. And I can hear her say, who is he? I understand a little bit of Russian. Who is he? He's a writer. He's soft. What kind of writer? He writes about human, you know, human rights. Uh, who does he, who's, who's his target? He's China, Kitai, China. Okay, so 
but they're like, well, no, Russia, 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 you know, now, now, but they're arguing back and forth. And they're like, what are we doing letting these people through? Yeah, we only had a five day visa. It's just a transit visa. Just get through the country, get back to Europe. But this was the moment. And that was the moment where they could have just pulled the car apart and found an every data stick, they would have looked through it. Uh, it didn't matter how much garbage we disguised with it. Uh, we had, we put all kinds of silly images and songs and things like that on there. Uh, and they, I'm sure they would have been very thorough. They decided not to go that way. And when I got through that border, I said, never, ever will I take a chance like that again. I will never do that to the witnesses. I put them at terrible risk here. Uh, now, I believe it's necessary. It's good to get the interviews. I came out with conclusions. That's partly why the bill just passed in Congress. But I don't have the right to uh, put people at risk in that way. And so that was where- you need to go to Europe as the safe harbor, so to speak. Oh, yes. And once we got through Russia, we had a good time in Moscow. It was interesting and everything. We Then uh, the minute we finally got across the border in, I believe, Lithuania, uh, my daughter turned on the uh, device and just turned on her phone and just took a picture. We're in the Schengen zone. Uh, I took a selfie. Uh, we immediately contacted our relatives. I hadn't spoken to my wife the entire time. The only reason she knew I was alive was because I'd slipped down to Kyrgyzstan and taken some money out at one point. And I knew she'd see that I'd taken cash out in Kyrgyzstan. Uh, that was my way of saying, I'm here, I'm alive. But normally we never use the bank card of any kind or a credit card of any kind because it gives away your position. Now, all of that is very appropriate for Kazakhstan because this is a fairly advanced state. And it's, it's uh, not only sort of heavily infiltrated by China, but it's also, of course, Russian. So it has Russian security. And the Russians are really second to none in many ways when it comes to security. They, I think their security is much better than their army, actually, uh, as far as I can tell. The interesting thing was that they, you know, so we knew that it was all electronic security in that country. And we knew that once we got out of Russia, that was it. We were clean and ready to go. But that moment of sitting there and having your fate, the fate, not of my fate, but the fate of these people who I'd interviewed, who put their trust in me, hanging by some discussion between two Russian broads. I mean, what? <laughs> now, this is not where I want to be. And it was that point where I started looking into, because I knew I was going back. And this time it was to an even probably more difficult environment, which was Tajikistan. Uh, specifically to look into how many Taj the Uyghurs had been uh, deported from Tajikistan by Chinese orders. Uh, very, very sensitive topic. Nobody had ever investigated it on the ground. Uh, I, we were interested in getting the uh, world court to look into this and, and, and examine it. Uh, to do that this time, uh, I was introduced by uh, a couple of people who do human rights security and, and regular security who mentioned Trezoret. And the more I looked into Trezoret, the more I became convinced this was the best answer. It was a reasonably small company but had a very good record. A lot of the things I like to use are things like Threema, they're smaller, 
little smaller than the, a little more off the beaten track. Uh, the price was reasonable. And they were basically would give me the ability to do an interview, send it off, take it off the computer completely, delete it, and you're clean. So even if you were stopped by the police, uh, which was completely plausible if you would be, uh, especially in Tajikistan and in Kazakhstan, we were stopped by the police very often. You, there was nothing for them to find. There's literally, you know, sort of tourist pictures and that kind of thing. And then we could stay connected while we were there. We would, we would actually use the devices. And that is how it worked. President Chain, this is, um, okay, so 2020 is Kazakhstan. So 2021 was Tajikistan. Then the next year after that was Turkey, where I was basically getting a family out of uh, Kyrgyzstan, out of Bishkek, and transporting them to America. And to do that, that we had to spend a long time in Turkey waiting for the, but this was a family that was going to be deported from Bishkek and the father would have been killed and the wife who was Kyrgyz would have gone to pine away in the mountains somewhere and the son probably would have been turned into a, an operative if they could have done that. It's a very bright boy. They are, they're in America now. They, Homeland Security, Department of Homeland Security finally agreed. To let them in. But that was also a fairly tense situation because Istanbul, as much as it's a great city and a wonderful place, and I encourage anybody to go there, is also does have some Chinese operatives in it. And they were very, very angry about the fact that my friend Connor Healy of IPVM had gone into Bishkek and pulled them out, just plucked them out in a single night. Uh, he bought their tickets for the plane uh, an hour before the flight. I mean, it was like Argo or something, all right? It was like, okay, that wasn't quite the gun, you know, men and guns pursuing the, the plane is left on the runway, but there was that feeling of, we have left the airspace of Central Asia. I mean- Sounds like the holiday, uh, uh, not holiday, Hollywood thrill, so to speak. Well, I mean, there, there's some aspects to that. I, I, I wanted to go and, and sort of collect them because this was a guy I discovered while I'd been in, in Kyrgyzstan. Uh, and I wanted to go help them. But I was, at that point, I think we were known to the Kyrgyz police and to the Tajik police. They figured out what we were doing. Uh, so he came in and was able to do this and it was a brilliant job. And what I'm saying here again is even in a reasonably friendly country, Turkey's a NATO country, it's like, uh, uh, you know, you have to worry about surveillance. You, you have to be concerned about this. Now, everything I'm saying so far today, I mean, these are nice, you know, interesting stories maybe, but the fact is, and they may seem so extreme, but the fact is any, you know, lower the volume here and you have a situation that we're all in to some extent. Look, I happen, you know, the, you know, the paranoid's real fake world is my real world to some extent. There is a government, China, Beijing, if you like, that is throwing banana peels in front of my path. Okay, <laughs> all right, they actually do. They did spend lots of attempts to take over my computer and that sort of thing. But the truth is we all live in that world in, a, in some form. Uh, we all have competitors, enemies, you know, uh, even disgruntled employees. I mean, there are all kinds of possibilities uh, where uh, we just simply cannot uh, 
allow people to go into certain areas because you're in certain doors have to remain locked. And let me just quickly come in here. Um, so you've traveled the world actually, trying to help people in need to stand up for their fundamental rights. And um, you've mentioned Turkey, you've mentioned Kazakhstan, you've mentioned China and many other places. So what would you think was the most dicey situation you were in in which country? Well, I think Tajikistan was the most difficult because for another reason, because they simply did not rely, in fact, on, you know, you know the nice thing about being sur surveillance when it's electronic is you're not really aware of it, <laughs> right? I mean, you, you're just, they're, they're picking you up, they're doing a facial recognition on you. Uh, you're walking in the square, they know it's you. The computer then it's again about new tech, advanced tech, AI, exactly. we're, we're talking yeah, exactly. about everything Look. which is on the news actually when it comes to dystopian uh, visions or something but um as we've experienced this is not just a thing of of the east so to speak we also have tendencies in in europe these days for example and in, in the uk um call it um online safety bill call it the chat control um which is essentially about weakening um private communications um so this is a thing that is probably valid for many places in the world and it doesn't really matter yes. where you are it probably does matter what you do it's probably Let's, better to not be a human rights activist um well, let me let me revert back to the, the human rights activist point to to, to 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 pick up on what i think you're getting at there are two views within the human rights community of people who do sort of stuff like kind of what I do. I'm not the only person at all, but the the uh, one view is we just need to collect all the witness information we can get and put it on the web, okay? It's a very, um, I don't know, I guess people like that are attracted to some of the Snowden and people like that. I mean, you know, there's a tendency to say, if we just put it all out there, there's too many, it's, a, it's like crowdsourcing. There's, there's just too many targets to go after. Look, first of all, I don't believe that. I spent a lot of time in China. They don't mind having lots of targets. Target-rich environments don't do Okay. But leaving aside that, I do believe that there are cases that, yeah, I mean, I think that's basically, they're not wrong. It's, this is, most of what you do should be out there. That's probably why I'm on this program. You know, I, first of all, I can't do the same tricks every time. So I can reveal some of the methods I use. They're not that hard to, you know, I'll have to do something else next time. But a lot of what you can do is like that triangle. You know, you basically, it's there's a huge part of the third of that triangle is enormous size, and you can do it right out in the open. There's another part which is semi-confidential, has got to be kept sort of among friends. And there's a hippie top part there where you really have to hold on to the information. And that you have to be completely confident about. And I think that's true in the business world, too. So I don't think this is just a human rights phenomenon. Uh, as I say, I mean, businesses, uh, you, know, uh, you know, I've worked in business world, at least in, in China, and uh, with American and European companies. And, uh, you know, we saw this all the time that, you know, brands would get stolen, uh, products would just get imitated, uh, you know, within three months of entering a market, it was gone, gone away, or even before it got to the market, a 
you know, it's, it's probably an apocryphal story, but uh, a famous one among expats was somebody driving and they're out in the Chinese countryside. And this businessman from America gets lost and he drives over a hill and there's his factory. He's like, okay, I've arrived. This is great. I, I don't know how I found my way back here, but I did. It wasn't his factory. It was an, a completely <laughs> a perfect imitation of his factory with another name on it. And it was making exactly the same product for the Chinese market. They were selling it at a considerable discount. Uh, you know, whether that's true or not, it, it, there's something, again, that's the banana peel point. And that's not just true about China. That's true about many uh, business environments these days. And, and so I would have to say that, you know, it, people put so much work into uh, insurance and legal insurance, and they should. They should have that kind of thing. I, I wish I had it. Uh, but it is also true that your information is everything. And the idea that you can put your information on, say, Google Drive, Google Documents. Google has, <laughs> Google has <No> you know, <laughs> relationships. They have, Google has relationships with companies. That's how, why it's free, because they make that money. They do it through advertising. They do it through sharing your information, not your most important stuff, but sharing some aspect of your information with a wider audience. And that wider audience also, first of all, for me, it that wider audience operates in China. So that's a real problem because we know that I've, I've been witness to it where companies have given up secrets to China because China, Beijing demanded it. Uh, but it's not just that. I mean, there's, there's many areas of potential security breaches here, even if a company is very good, even, a even if a company is very well-meaning. You mentioned we transfer. Look, I have really no idea about that company. They seem very like very nice people, very interesting and so forth. Uh, it's a good system. But there's something wrong with the fact that, first of all, they're looking at what I'm doing. Treasury never did that. Treasury never said, I mean, my, sometimes when I was in Tajikistan, I had a hard time uploading that interview. But that was just because we have horrible <laughs> data. You know, we have uh, horrible uh, connectivity in that country. It's a bit of a third world basket case country. Uh, that is not the same. Trezor had never rejected a file. And this was, was when you ask what was the tensest moment, the tensest moment was when we got out to the border with China and actually started driving along that border because I had a theory that there was some sort of military installation there and I wanted to see it and I wanted to photograph even very quickly. and. When we did that, there it was. And we knew they were looking at us. They were, they had Jeeps and you know, all kinds of vehicles. And, uh, and the first thing I did when we sort of got to this truck stop where it had some internet connectivity was I shot it up to, shot up those photographs to treasure it, put them up there. And, and uh, got rid of them and deleted them as quickly as I could. Uh, it's, it's a fairly straightforward thing. I mean, you know, I don't want to overdo this point. Everybody is not in a situation where there's a question of life and death. This was. These were very difficult situations. Uh, 
But I but think on the other hand, you know, um, coming back to the point um, when people are aware or are not aware of um, providers sharing data with third parties, they don't want them to maybe. Um, do you think um, the behavior has slightly changed um, within the people's minds after Cambridge Analytica and all the people that were at risk and all this, all these Western values maybe that were at stake? Or do you, or how do you feel about the current situation? Well, I feel that basically it's, it's, it's one of these things you can practically set your watch by it, uh, that China does some major breach. Uh, and then we have, uh, you know, sort of the public becomes aware of it. And there's a lot of talk on MSNBC and CBNC and uh, about whatever data breaches happened, or there's these Cambridge Analytica situations like that. Uh, and then people go back to kind of a complacency. And uh, I don't intend to do that. My intention is to stick with these systems. I did feel I have a deep mistrust of the cloud, okay? And I think it's it's legitimate. And uh, unless there is a carefully fenced off area of it, I'm not really comfortable storing data there, okay? I believe in backing on my data in physical forms, okay? Um, I don't believe in putting, in keeping very sensitive stuff on my hard drive or in the cloud, except with Treasury. Now, Treasury has now become my major secret file cap. That's the way I, I use it. And why is uh, that? Why, why do well, you it's very easy to cooperate with other, it's very easy, for one thing, it's very easy to cooperate, just like Google Docs or something like that. It's very easy to sort of give somebody an invitation, say, come look at this. You know, you want to work together on this as this interview or this aspect, or maybe a lot of stuff we do as uh, images. That's all fine and good. But the main reason is that you, if you can, I'm paying for it. <laughs> Basically, I'm paying for this service. Uh, that and experts who are above and. Uh, I think maybe experts, people like IPVM, have said that they trust Trezorit and they don't trust other systems. Uh, so I'm, you know, that's like Consumer Reports used to be when I was growing up. That's like, I'll put some stock into Consumer Reports. They actually do legitimate testing of these products. So for that reason, I'm, I'm, I'm very comfortable. I don't lose sleep over Trezorit. Uh, being available. And I did have kind of an on and off switch for Trezorit on my computer. So that if I were getting in trouble, uh, say in Tajikistan, uh, that I could kind of block uh, signal and block Trezorit. Now, no plan is perfect. If, you know, I sort of, you know, started uh, tearing out my thumbnails or something like that and saying, you know, why don't you tell us what, what your code is? Uh, you know, who knows what would happen? No plan is perfect. Nothing, uh, but that never happened. Uh, but I think there's one other point I wanted to address that you were getting at. You see, we learned that these systems, uh, that there's data breaches, but we learned about them way after the fact. Uh, that's the point. So there's this kind of um, weird confidence in the business community and the human rights community too, for that matter, uh, that 
if there was a problem with any one of these systems that we're using, like Google Docs or something, uh, we'd know about it. It'd be on the front pages, you know, Wall Street Journal or something. Uh, I don't believe that's true. And I know that because I saw problems like this in China that never got reported. In fact, my very first book was about reporting some of those problems. Uh, so I'd have to say, uh, we can't have that kind of confidence that the media is acting in a true watchdog role anymore. I don't believe it is. Well, what you're actually um, explaining here is a kind of critical situation for the cyberspace in general, from what I feel. And um, people are highly confused about the way they should navigate this new cyberspace, probably. And as you said, this isn't just about human rights activism. This could be also about ordinary people like you and all like me, not like you. You, you are a human rights activist, but ordinary people like me going on business trips, having confidential data that is maybe the, get, getting the victim of a cyber breach and um, sabotage or whatever. So what would you what would you say how to navigate how we can navigate um, this new kind of cyberspace where cybercrime, cyber war is everyday life, so to speak? I, I, I can't say how to do it. I don't have that kind of expertise. I have a kind of a I'm more like a common foot soldier, and I, I wouldn't I wouldn't know how to run a campaign, so to speak. But within that, I mean, these, those are my kind of rules. Uh, you have to find a, a part of the cloud. If you're going to use the cloud at all, this is pretty much the only option if you don't ever want to go through a border situation like the one I described. Again, uh, you're going to have to, then you need to find a part of the cloud you trust. Okay. You need to find a part of the cloud you trust, a part of the cloud you trust, and you can trust other people to access it if you give certain people permission. Uh, you don't want that process to be too tedious, not too arduous, or, 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 no, not too difficult. You don't want to spend a lot of money. You're willing to spend something because you need that. It's just like taking out a subscription. Sometimes that's the only thing to do. In this case, I consider it, as I say, a really, really good insurance policy for confidential data. These are interviews. I have interviews on my Transmarine account. Uh, this, these interviews, the Chinese, for example, uh, can do voice prints. And even if the person's name isn't on the interview, they can figure out who it is. Believe it or not, they really have that capability. <laughs> uh, the, there are documents that, you know, you know, okay, they don't have nuclear secrets, but they're pretty meaningful documents to me. Okay. Uh, so I think it's important. Uh, give you an example. I mean, we had at one point I worked with uh, Adrian Zentz, and he came out with a fantastic thing, the Xinjiang police files. Now, he has some deep throat, some hacker, somebody in the Politburo who has been giving him amazing information for some time now, and he comes out with it. When the Xinjiang police files came out, initially, it was not well protected. Uh, it was in a, a situation where it could have been hacked. Now, if it had been hacked quickly, you know, they, they took care of that problem within the first day. So I'm, I'm proud to say I was a little bit part of that process. But uh, 
But if it had been hacked, you could have taken AI generated photos of, we had all these photos of victims, of, of people who were in, in the camps, mugshots. And you could have taken them and replaced them with AI generated photos of Uyghurs. And then revealed that some of these photo, photographs were AI generated. And then where would you be? You've lost all credibility. Uh, that actually happened with somebody else who used that same kind of file. They tried to fill in some of the police, uh, police uh, uh, people, uh, policemen, with uh, using AI. They tried to use uh, some shots of policemen, and they ended up at one point with a guy who plays a policeman on TV in China. You can imagine what the Chinese did with that information. They said, well, oh, this discredits everything. Uh, that is one of the most dangerous things. I mean, it's always been true that with companies, uh, if you could alter financial data, uh, if that is, you know, if, if you can do that, it's, it's not so much a question of sinking. It's not Pearl Harbor. The ships come right back up. The problem is, what if they're not the same ships exactly? And that's what you have to guard against. And I, again, I believe that is really, really essential. That's uh, one of the most essential insurance policies you can take out. So now we're talking disinformation and deep fakes right now. Um, yeah, exactly. And I think that's this problem is only going to get worse and worse and worse. Uh, initially, that was a mistake that somebody else did to themselves. It was a, it was a, an own own goal. It was you know it was a, a, a mistake that didn't have to happen. They tried to fill in using AI. They tried to fill in some. Of, the police pictures, and they ended up, the AI ended up putting in a, a guy who played a policeman because visually it's the same thing. Uh, very famous actor. And this is an important part of the discussion, I think, that gets lost um, during the course of many discussions that we have these new technologies and we have its new capabilities, actually that maybe have been out there at some places in the world, but not, you know, for mass consumption. And now it's, there's this dynamic evolution. So therefore um, we have on the one hand, uh, on, 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 the, on the left side, so to speak, um, we have artists, we have creatives, and we have this side um, to the story. But on the other hand, we have the dark web, for example, and we have these wrong hands, so to speak, that leverage this for, for example, using AI for generating code, ransomware as a service, all these kinds of things that are out there right now. So what we should try to do, in my opinion, is to take a deeper look at the, the ethics behind it, actually, to look at um, ethics by design when it comes to AI development, for example, and also privacy by design um, methods when, um, you know, trying to get these solutions out there on a bigger scale. But um, I think we're not there at the moment. Many people are thinking and talking about this on the official level, I think. But um, this is exactly what you what you said. Actually, once it's you know this high level of threat, so that you can fake information that should be confidential, for example, this will be dystopia for sure. But in my opinion, we we won't end up there, 
um, it was the same story and the same narrative, I think, with each and every new technology or digital technology. But this is what we should keep in mind and what we should be aware of. Well, I, I mean, I'm going to push back a little there. I mean, I don't believe there's an arc of history here. Uh, look, I've seen this, my own field deteriorate before my eyes. My last book back in 2014, this new book now, is obviously we've been talking about some of the issues in it today. And I, li I like to talk about the, the, the security aspect of this. But I didn't, I didn't put anything like that in my last book because it wasn't a real issue. I mean, I could go around the world interviewing Falun Gong refugees. Now, I couldn't go into China. Okay, fair enough. Uh, they made that really impossible and difficult. But the but I could go to Hong Kong. I could go to Taiwan. I could go to uh, uh, Dharamsala. Uh, I could go to uh, Australia, North America, and Canada, and all these places, and just interview uh, refugees. And a lot of them were getting out. What happened then is that the Chinese complicated things because they turned this into, if you were looking at this stuff, they basically turned you into a spy. And they worked out arrangements with countries like Kazakhstan and Tajikistan and so forth, and even Turkey to some extent, where they said, you don't want this kind of information emerging from Turkey, for example. We don't want... You don't want people talking about that they were doing slave labor in China. But they're Uyghurs. They did slave labor. They worked in the fields. Or they worked in some terrible factory. Uh, or they worked in prison. You don't want them talking about that. It'll make you look bad and it'll make us look bad. We just simply don't want that. So they, a lot of countries went along. It's, it's, it's much easier to just go along with that. And a lot of countries are all using the surveillance that they did not, you know, these surveillance capabilities that initially maybe they had some ethical concern about, some restraints uh, involved in that. That's gone. Okay, all, all these, all the countries are using that now. And AI is going to do that, it's gonna be that times 10, uh, in my opinion. I mean, right now we're seeing a little bit of resistance, uh, you know, to this, maybe we're going too far and so forth. Do you think that resistance is going on in China? I don't think so. I think they're going it's on full, and it's evolving. full speed ahead. It's evolving very quickly. And they're going to the worst possible stance, which is they're, they're trying to make AI, which makes more AI. Okay. And that's where you're replicating. That's, that's truly dangerous. And uh, so I'm not sure how I feel about that. I, I, I don't know. Uh, I mean, I'd like to feel the way describing it, but this is, of ultimately these things will settle down and we'll get through it. Uh, but that didn't happen in human rights. And what it's done, and it's not the end of the world, but it's forced people like me, who aren't really spies by nature, which is why I thought maybe Federal Express was a perfectly good way to send a bunch of data from Kazakhstan, okay? But it's not. And it meant that I had to suddenly become in a split second, was you know, essentially like a spy, work like a spy. Okay. And um, okay, I'm okay at doing that, but I've taken some risks. I don't think I should have at times with my witnesses. I'm not happy about that. It's not an unparalleled success. But we did get some people out. The 
bottom line is, yes, this is an evolving situation. It's cat and mouse. There is no one single solution. Everybody in the, in the uh, there's something about techies that they just love to say, oh, well, we've got this perfect solution for, for what you're describing. It's like, no, you really don't. But you can, if you can supply one component of it, kind of the way Signal revolutionized uh, secure communication, uh, those are the systems I want to work with. If I can work with a very good VPN, a very good place to store data and to share data in a very good communication system. Those are the big three, okay? Those are the big three. And then, and, and, um, but and even that, a VPN. With, with even good, a, sorry, with good, you probably mean like end-to-end -end encrypted zero-knowledge technology. Yes. Yeah, I do mean that. And I mean, even then, we know perfectly well that uh, we know that these systems, even with a VPN on beautifully, because these, all these systems out there leave some sort of fingerprints that a sophisticated country like Tajikistan, which has a lot of Russians working in their, their secret police and their monitoring, uh, can pick up. We know that when you turn signal on, or we suspect strongly, if you turn signal on, it is like turning on a siren in the middle of the Kazakh desert saying, I'm here, come get me. I'm doing something very unusual, okay? That's a problem, okay? This is, this is the reason why we didn't turn devices on in that country. For the time being, we can say that there are certain systems that don't set off the alarms. And maybe this is the silver lining or the high note we can end on the talk, this talk at least, that there are solutions out there. You can possibly use for some purposes, maybe put it like this, and uh, security will always be a bigger framework than just one solution or than just one method or one technique. It will be a whole lot more to navigate the cyberspace uh, more securely and to, to stay um, under the radar maybe of some um, systems or some um, people. But yeah, this was really nice um, talking to you, um, Ethan Gutmann. Um, we will have some more time to talk to you, fortunately. So I'd say um, we're now uh, very eager to learn about what the audience and the community has to say. So how do you feel? Um, shall we? I think we can move on to the Q&A session. We have the first question that is quite interesting, I think. Um, you've mentioned some aspects of it, but um, do you have any concerns about Tresrit from a human rights um, researcher perspective? Let me be, I, I think I sort of said this in, in the talk, but I'm going to repeat it because it's an important point. Uh, you know, look, I'm a guy who's getting on in years. You start losing um, some technical ability. It just sort of, you, you lose the thread a little bit as you get on. Uh, so I rely on experts. Now, the experts I rely on is a company called IPVM. Now, those initials don't stand for anything, but IPVM is a really important uh, research company because what they research is Chinese surveillance. They're experts at it. They've had people coming, uh, feeding them information from inside China. They've come out with uh, some very startling reports, uh, and they're very well known in it's the security world. And uh, 
one of the people I mentioned was Connor Healy, and I work with him quite often. I worked with him on the uh, uh, the Kyrgyz family case, the family that we rescued. Uh, I asked him directly about this without prompting him in any way. I sort of said, how would I share documents in a secure way? And he said, well, don't use Google Docs. <laughs> he went through a bunch of things I wasn't to use. And then he said, but Trezorit, we, we think Trezorit's, we have really high, uh, we, have, we, we think they have a really good reputation. And we think they're worth it. And uh, they're not too large a company and we don't feel they're compromised. Now I'm going with that. Uh, the second thing was that I found it a very easy interface, uh, uh, which is important when you're in the field. Uh, you don't really need to be uh, gumming. You don't really want to work with something too complex when you're desperately trying to get an interview or those pictures I've talked about of a Chinese military base and you're trying to get them uh, into a safe space and then delete them. Uh, and we had very few failures in the field. Okay, so we lost uh, we lost one interview, but that was out of quite a few. Uh, and the problem again was probably connectivity, not Trezorit, so to speak, Trezorit itself. Uh, so I think uh, that's my main confidence. The final thing I'd say is that I've dealt with companies for a long time. Larger companies have a lot lot of interests. Somewhat smaller companies don't. They're a little more customer focused, and uh, that's extremely important in this case for uh, human rights workers because they need sharing. to have an actual sure yeah thanks ethan for sharing maybe i can um, add something to this even if we had um so from a treasury perspective even if we had other and different um, interests into our users data we couldn't access them as it's zero knowledge architecture so this is really at the core of treasury as a company um, due to our um, patented encryption technology, we can't even if we wanted to. So this is basically it when it comes to growing the company again. This is the security by design principles we're working on, uh, or we, we were implementing just by design. So um, this is the Ethan Goodman, and this is the treasury perspective on this question. I hope this was useful. Um, let's move on to the next one. There's a question on the Xinjiang files, the police files. Um, I think not everybody is familiar with this. I know that this is about um, police violence in this region of China and about torture and claims like this. So maybe we, you can put this um, again into perspective and um, maybe say something about this. Well, this was kind of a breakthrough report, which came out from Adrian Zentz, the uh, German researcher. He also is a colleague of mine at Victims of Communism Memorial Foundation in Washington, D.C. Uh, we work together sometimes, not all the time. But he uh, has a, some sort of deep throat inside China who leaked these files to him. They are actual police files. So in other words, they have uh, uh, one, maybe one camp where they have the mug shots of all the Uyghurs, mainly Uyghurs, some Kazakh, in the camp. Uh, that's unparalleled. We've never seen that before. Okay, every single person, and they're very clear mug shots, and it gives their blood type, interestingly enough, from my organ harvesting research. Uh, it gives their name. Uh, it gives a few personal details about each person. Uh, it also has pictures uh, that are sort of, I guess, being used partially for training purposes. 
So it shows uh, police torturing people. Uh, and they, they, their photographs, they're, sometimes they look a bit staged, sometimes they don't. Uh, it's a little bit hard to determine what's, what's going on. And that's typically Chinese that they sort of mix in both, uh, you know, staged training photographs and, and real photographs together. But so it was very dramatic material. It also contained a lot of information, which gave you a sense of kind of the, uh, uh, the flow chart of the systems, okay, of a, a top-down police system uh, in, a, in a camp in uh, Xinjiang. Now, there are many, many of these camps, okay? We are talking about, as I said, a minimum of a million people. And uh, it's interesting to note that when I was in Kazakhstan and doing my interviews, I never interviewed uh, everybody came from a different camp, every single person. And so, okay, so we're talking about 25 people or something, but that's still very striking. That gives you a sense of how big these are. And none of these camps actually had names. They literally, I mean, I asked them, well, what's the name of the camp? Now, some people could actually identify where it was on Google Earth, but a lot of people couldn't even do that. But that tells you um, something about how secret this operation is. And that's why the Xinjiang police files were such an important contribution uh, to the uh, field. Thanks for putting this into perspective. I think now the big picture is a bit clearer. And when we're talking about the whole of China, um, it is also about um, these big business relationships with the whole world, basically. And therefore, I think the next question is really important to many of our viewers. Um, it's about um, the, let's say, East versus West again, somehow, Western um, states again, somehow. Uh, so how interested is China in spying on Western companies? What industries are they mainly interested in? So do you have some insights into this or is this too far, so to speak? No, I think, I mean, it's it's easy to make a comment there, but I'd just be very short about it. I think uh, all all companies are of some interest to in China. Uh, look, there, there are some things that actually have a direct impact uh, that are dual use, so to speak, kind of about the civilian use and a military aspect as well, potentially. Uh, there are some things that are sort of in the middle. Was sort of, for example, organ harvesting, where you have, say, bio glue, which is a perfectly good product and used for, you know, medical procedures, but it's also very useful in the transplant world. Okay. And uh, so the Chinese want to imitate it, uh, and they, they imitated ECMO machines, for example, which is an oxygenation method, so you can actually harvest somebody while they're still alive, while they're actually still living, and the heart is still beating, uh, and you can keep the organs oxygenated. They want to reproduce that technology. In some cases, they want to reproduce it even better. They're a creative society. Uh, the final thing is that, look, everything in China has a political or at least an economic aspect. So even when you're talking about tapioca production figures, they're not always true. Uh, the, at the same time, there are always Chinese companies who are competitive and want to uh, reverse engineer any Western product. And also want to figure out ways to uh, to produce their own mass of raw materials and so forth. And that gives some direction to things like the Belt and Road Initiative. Uh, so maybe I've answered that maybe too China heavy, but uh, I guess you get a feeling for what I'm talking about here. This is uh, an endless cat and mouse game when you're doing business in China or even partners of China. 
Sure, I know what you mean. Uh, I've been working in, in medical technology um, a few years ago and therefore had a little deep dive into, you know, the whole sphere of healthcare and whatever, and also research and development. And if we look at the at the history again, you know, it has always been like for 50 years now, a big um, giving and taking, but at the moment it seems, um, yeah, if, if I look, for example, at SMBs in Germany, where I'm located, um, there's many, many Chinese companies buying these SMBs in Germany right now. Um, mm -hmm. So um, the strategy is clear, I think, where this is going to, and it's clearly life sciences, technology, and all these kind of uh, relevant um, industries, I'd say. But I don't know anything about everything else, so I will keep my mouth shut now. and. Um, Thank you. I will you. have I will have some revelations about your country and portable ECMO machines in my book. I don't want to give them away here. I have to hold back some secrets, uh, but uh, that's going to be a, a an interesting story because it also intersects uh, with uh, with COVID. In fact, it probably dates the first outbreak of COVID back to June two thousand nineteen. That sounds interesting. <laughs> however, no. it, however, we don't have the time, I think, to dive into this right now. So let's just move on to, to the next question, which is not that uh, official level, so to speak, but rather a basic one. Um, there's a question regarding what security measures can be taken to um, secure information, to protect data in general. And um, well, from a um, security, IT security perspective, at least, I have to say, security is always a framework and it's never, you know, the end of the framework. We can never reach this as this is a cat and mouse game as many of you out there might have noticed already. So um, let's just stick to the basics, so to speak, that are, let's say, that prevents you from being a low hanging fruit to hackers. So um, once you get your strong passwords right, once you get your software patch management right, i.e. Um, basic security patches of the providers and maybe also third-party providers and um, get your firewall in place, have multi-factor authentication, which is not only, of course, um, having a password and having an authenticator app. This could be something else too. So there are also physical solutions that can be implemented, but um, we have plenty of information on this on our website, on the Treasury website, on the blog, on the knowledge base. Um, you can also watch the webinar we had with um, Shannon, uh, who is a private investigator and was also working for the authorities sometime. I, I don't know, I can't really remember, but this was a really good, good one in terms of how to securing hybrid network environments. And um, there were also questions like this. Um, and the last thing I'd recommend are something like activity reports. I know in the private field, this is quite difficult to implement, but once you know what activities are taking place on your website, on your router, on your name it, you name it, um, you can prevent things from getting worse at least, and you can monitor and react and put other and, and many more um, security measures into place. But I hope that I have um, touched the, the basics. Maybe Ethan, you have some more, I don't know. Uh, I would and, just and, add one thing. I mean, a, I would just add one thing, uh, Stefan. I mean, look, the 
I don't mean to sound so negative about AI on a small on a small scale use or sort of within a single company if it's carefully done. One can actually set up the architecture that so AI will read anomalies. It will see you know what could be security breaches potentially that kind of thing just through the activity, and there's nothing wrong with that. Uh, that's that's a really good use of AI. You can't have with these systems and with people on online you know sometimes 16 hours a day, you can't expect everybody to go over everything all the time to have a single individual doing that. But the AI can pick it up. Uh, and so in that sense, it's, it can be very useful in, internally. Uh, and so as long as it's not misused, right? Uh, so I, I have the same feeling. I mean, the point is, I do believe in proliferating systems a little bit. Uh, if you go with one system, it's a little bit like building a a castle wall and you you sort of got this one big gate and it's very easy they can sort of target that that one wall actually what you want is this series of layered defenses right uh so it's it's fairly hard to get through now one last aspect of it it is very difficult to do patches in the field now that's an anomaly of doing sort of human rights work or any kind of work that is involves in the field work the last thing you want is, is somebody with a computer updating in the middle of what you're doing uh, because it exposes all kinds of, it creates vulnerabilities and exposes all kinds of things during that period. Uh, so that was one thing I was very cautious about. Uh, I've just been told by uh, British Naval Intelligence to do that. Yeah, and you've taken me to uh, another thing. Um, basically, this one I, I want to add to. Um, from my training as a data protection officer, um, I learned that, you know, at this point of time, most of the people are thinking about um, the digital space when thinking about data protection. But on the other hand, the basics also include not having something like this open, so to speak, um, on the table or and and you know with confidential data. Maybe there are some documents already printed out and you just leave it on the table, but you never know who's gonna step in. You know, there are many, many people coming into a company every day, for example, yeah. and they could be whatever, you know, in their second life or whatever, they could be not what it seems, or they could benefit from from leaking something. Um, when you're in an R&D environment, this is um, yeah, particularly important. So always well, keep in mind just, that uh, this is not about only about digital data yeah. privacy, but also about the physical world. We just saw that 48 hours ago uh, with with Putin, and he was uh, you know they sort of had he was talking about something, and apparently some people apparently read the watches in the crowd, and they, they didn't correspond with the time that it was being released. Uh, now they didn't get close enough to watches to actually see the dates on the, on the watches, but it was close. And, uh, you know, I'm sure somebody can pick up right from my background that I'm kind of into Russian literature. But whatever, right? In that case, I don't think that's too big a security <laughs> breach. But, you know, yeah, that's absolutely right. You have to be uh, reasonably cautious about that. Again, I'm not that kind of super paranoid person. I believe that most of what you do should be quite out there. Uh, right out in front of people, it's no problem. But, you know, uh, it's this this is the area of, um, well, that's that's just good hygiene, especially when you're in the field. Uh, 
So I never, I always was very careful about any photographs that were released. In fact, when I was traveling in Kazakhstan, I had my son putting out pictures of me in London because that's where I was living at the time. So I'd, I'd prepared various pictures and suddenly it was New Year's and I'm toasting everybody New Year's and having a party. Uh, and apparently uh, it probably worked because I have people who monitor my Facebook activity. Uh, and so it sort of let them off the hook. They could sort of say, oh, well, he's home. He's back in London, you know, looking around. Uh, so I think it's just possible to use those details also in a deceptive phasing. The turbulent life, Ethan. <laughs> I don't know. Not these days, no. These days <laughs> I just have to have to write. But uh, but no, I love I love talking about this stuff. And I, I like talking about it with the uh, interesting to. Uh, and this is good. And that's some interesting questions. Let's move on to the next interesting question, which is about security measure, measures, but um, technology. So um, one guest of our talk um, was asking about the technologies that help the Chinese government um, to suppress dissent and control its citizens. So how could um, encryption, for example, work with that? Yeah, the, uh, we're not, it's not clear that most encryption is safe within China. And I'm not sure how they're doing that. I cannot answer that question. But I did talk to somebody uh, who was a top expert in this, who's from China, he's from Xinjiang, he's a Uyghur. And he actually was the guy who created the uh, equations which led to the first uh, racial differentiation uh, in facial recognition. So in other words, a camera, presumably Huawei, uh, which could differentiate between a, a Chinese, a Han Chinese person and a Uyghur person, just on the facial structure. Uh, and it was apparently something like 95% right. It's very accurate. Uh, they also, he also developed a, so this is where their system is very successful, a stress test. So it can actually, obviously we can, our blood moves a certain way. Now that's something we can't really pick up with our eyes, but the camera can, and it can it can pick up the movement of blood and uh, something about that can give you the level of stress. So they were literally in China, the way this played out was they were actually carrying out arrest. If you were a Uyghur, it gave you like 50 out of 100 points. If you were then showing some level of stress that gave you another 30 points, that meant an arrest or at least to detain the person. So they were detaining people purely on their appearance uh, on these cameras. That's a, a very high level of surveillance that we the world's never seen. Uh, uh, other countries may have the capability to do this kind of thing. They, they don't seem to be carrying out arrests based, based on this, but China is. So how, how can we then, this is another question, um, Get the measures in place that um, you know prevent China from violating human rights. Um, is this on the states? Is this on the technology sector? What do you think? It's probably on the diplomatic political sector. I mean, if if China goes to war, invades Taiwan or blockades Taiwan, uh, I believe they will probably. There's a good. Sh reasonable shot that they may wipe out the entire Uyghur population, approximately 15 million people during that period of war. 
uh, it's at least a possibility. Now, so part of it is keeping somewhat stable foreign relations. Uh, it's not desirable to have a good war. Uh, the second thing I would say is uh, you have to make them pay a price. Uh, there's no way to stop the technology or, their, or the way they're using the technology exactly. But uh, it is possible to interfere with business, normal business in these areas. They really shouldn't be, uh, you know, first of all, the obvious thing, you know, Huawei should not be used anywhere in the West, right? Uh, you don't want any of those uh, systems being sold uh, globally. Uh, the other thing is it's possible to cut off other technologies which are coming in, which they're interested in. And it's not that hard to figure out what they are. We don't have to get into all the details there. It's an excellent question. Thanks. Stefan, you... Oh, sorry. <laughs> there was some noise in the background, so I had to mute myself. Um, now it's better. So thanks for answering this. And before we um, end this, Maybe um, the last question for this session as we're running out of time um, now, um, but I think there was a bit of confusion during the talk. Um, there's a question um, for you, Ethan, and maybe also for me. So um, how would you convince people and companies to use a tool like Tresrit um, and why is it worth the investment? Because this um, user understood, and I'm sorry for this, this was a misunderstanding, obviously, that uh, we mentioned security breaches and they were not made public. Um, basically, this is wrong. This was a miscommunication, obviously. Um, Tresrid is an unhacked company. So um, I dare you. Um, there's also a competition going on. I think it's 30,000 US dollars or something. You can look it up on the internet. Um, the guy who hacks Treasure gets this reward. Um, mm. So if you want to opt for secure and easy file sharing, I think you should take Treasure as the solution. Um, but let's see what um, Ethan has to say about this. So what do you think, Ethan? How could you convince this user to use a tool like Treasure well, I actually would would advocate for a company like IPVM, which is their this is their only business is, is uh, internet security, uh, for them to come out with a sort of a, a nice easy top ten list of their the top products they see out there, even top seven. Uh, you know, I think they've essentially done that with me. Okay, they've kind of given me their their best picks, and uh, there's nothing wrong with having a a kind of one of those uh, people love lists, right? You know, it's very attractive. Uh, that should probably be on there. Their main problem is companies which sell data. Okay. And I think the point, Stefan, you were making was that we can't even see the data. And, uh, and we're certainly not selling it to anyone. And that's why we have to have a subscription-based service. But that is real protection. Okay. That is the most important thing. Because once somebody else is seeing the data, uh, you just don't know how far that can go. And especially in a, in a world which is in some, some mild level of crisis, uh, it's, uh, we, we just don't know how far that's going to go. 
and you cannot trust, you're trusting suddenly a lot of people. And it's much easier to trust a small amount of people. Uh, and that's what I've done. I think the other thing I would mention, and this is more personal, is smaller companies, look, the larger the company, the quicker they give in to political pressure, to economic pressure, to the pressure of some other larger company. Uh, the, the smaller companies don't tend to do that as much. Uh, the, the customer service aspect is real, okay? Try to complain to Google sometime about anything, okay? You, I swear you will get nowhere very quickly. Uh, if I need to go off and do some one of these crazy operations again somewhere, uh, I'm not gonna say a country, I can call, I can write to Trezorix and I may have to get a little bit of a runaround, but eventually I'll get to somebody else and say, look, I'm gonna be gone for like six months to a year. Can I just pay up front and that's done and then you're not gonna ask me for a credit card while I'm out doing whatever I do. Uh, and they'll do it. They can make arrangements like that. That's very important, okay? Every company should want that uh, because the future is always very uncertain. That's true. The future is uncertain. We're living in a in a time of crypto war, of cyber crime, of you name it. But still, I think we can have some trust and maybe less people than before. But we can have some trust. We can um, even leverage zero trust. <laughs> so zero trust and some trust and uh, digital trust. All this these are terms that are. Um, currently out there so it's you to decide what to use and I'm happy that you Ethan as a 2017 Nobel Prize nominee <laughs> are really using our solution which is uh, which we are really grateful as I said and it's an honor to being able to talk to you it's also for me I have nice <laughs> I have no problem I have no problem promoting products that I really believe in that have been field tested this way I mean that's part of what that's that's a sort of a minor part of what I do, but it's 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 an important part. Uh, Thank you so much. So um, looking at the time, I think we should have the final um, notice here. Our next webinar will be um, on the state of the union of Treasury. It's the summer update. And um, you will get every information you need to have on our feature and product roadmap. We have some really nice additions. Um, recently, we had um, an update on the email encryption function, um, the add-in and the add-on, and also um, we are leveraging eSign. Um, this will be available also um, at some point of time on a European qualified basis. So um, this is just for teasing, so to speak, the whole deal you would get on um, July 27. And now I want to thank again um, Ethan Gutman, and I hope that um, there will be even more um, visitors to our videos on, on YouTube in the future. And the recording will be shared with the audience and we will get to the rest of the questions right after the session. So Ethan and I um, will take care of getting the answers to you in a bit. So um, yeah, I hope to see you again sometime, Ethan. This was really nice, as I said. I'll see you in Germany, Stefan. Sure. That would be really nice. Have a nice day. Okay, cheers. Goodbye and goodbye to the audience.